Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show number 175. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Little nice compact show today. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. David Bradshaw at Lone DJ Tau City Radio kicks off today's show. Then Tanith Lee takes Starship Sova's interrogations. Next up is the main fiction, which is Damned When You Do by Jeff Carlson, and it is narrated by Larry Santuro, winner of the Sofa Nord Award, two years running. How about that? <laughs> Let's kick off straight away with David Bradshaw, Tau City Radio. Well, folks, it's a brand new year, 2011. And what with the internet, digital recording technology, electronic instruments, and sound processing software, there are more musicians than ever before putting their talent and skills to work to create music for your enjoyment. Well, that's what you're supposed to believe. Welcome to another uh, transmission from Tau Seti Radio. My name is David Bradshaw. I'd just like to start off by sending out a couple of words of thanks. Uh, first of all, to everybody who's uh, sent in submissions or suggestions of submissions for music for this show. I have to tell you, at this point in time, I've got an inbox full of good tunes. Uh, it's going to take me a little while, happily enough, to get through all of it, uh, which is, is a good thing in this case. Uh, no danger of running out of show material anytime in the near future. Uh, Believe me, I do have a look at those emails, listen to the music when uh, when uh, time permits, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to do my best to get as much of that on as possible, uh, be it uh, suggestions uh, from listeners uh, for tunes they'd like to hear, uh, as well as musicians or friends of musicians themselves who think they have something to contribute. And, uh, you know, believe me, I'd like to get as much of that to happen as possible, and we'll do what I can in the coming months to do just that also like to send out a special thanks to Church, uh, ever uh, ever active member of the online forums. 
at the Starship Sofa website. Uh, Church is doing a, a wonderful service uh, in, in the form of trying to get me out of my uh, technically challenged technophobic past and uh, instruct me on some of the ways of this newfangled computer business. Uh, as he was kind enough to point out very tactfully, I might add, uh, in uh, in, uh, in regard to a previous uh, edition of Tau Seti Radio, uh, that uh, audio examples of many of the pieces of music that I'm talking about would certainly be helpful for illustration. And uh, quite honestly, I didn't include it in many cases. First of all, because uh, I'm a little wary about copyright infringement, um, but more importantly because I don't really know a whole lot about how to capture audio from YouTube and the like. So I've gotten a little uh, tutorial or two from a church, and uh, we're going to try to put those skills to better use. In his 1997 book, Zen Guitar, a gentleman by the name of Philip Toshio Sudo applies somewhat of a martial arts philosophy to the making of music. Uh, he sums up the practice of a beginner or of a learner um, in, in four neat steps in, in the path of Zen Guitar, as he calls it. Step one, wear the white belt. Two, pick up your guitar. Three, tune. Four, play. Now, that's wonderful, elegant stuff. I'd like to draw particular attention to step number three, tune. Now, that seems a little bit trivial, perhaps, uh, but it's a fascinating topic, tuning. Uh, it's something that musicians spend an awful lot of time talking about. And, uh, you know, if I may, I demonstrate why that would be. Uh, interestingly enough, you don't have to have really any knowledge of music theory or skill or technique at all to appreciate why tuning is important. I shall grab my trusty guitar and demonstrate. If you don't have a background in music theory, uh, it wouldn't mean a hill of beans to you if somebody said, well, in the key of A, you need to play a C sharp rather than a C natural. doesn't mean a thing, does it? Well, let me demonstrate that. Even if you don't know what that means, you can probably hear the difference. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Now, what if I did this? Something's a little funny there. Let me try that again. Well, you could certainly call it a colorful tone, and perhaps in, uh, in the right context it might be something. But it doesn't take a trained ear to pick up that something sounds a little curious about that. To exaggerate the point a little bit further... I'm going to try that same chord again. sound like much, does it? All I've done there is throw the tuning of the guitar out. I'm playing the chords correctly, putting my fingers in the right places, but the sound, of course, is curious to say the least, because the instrument is not tuned accurately. 
And while the ear is, is sensitive to that sort of thing, it's even more so when you're dealing with a voice. Listening to somebody sing off-key can be absolutely excruciating. It's usually, again, not something that's difficult to tell when a singer is terribly off-key. Uh, you know, in, a little off-key from time to time, I suppose that's to be expected. And for that matter, when you're in the context of live music, I mean, nobody's terribly surprised if a performer makes a little mistake or has a little inconsistency in their vocal performance or, or what have you. I mean, it's a live show, after all, live without a net. Uh, you know, there's, a <laughs> there's no backup plan in most of those situations. Well, in the case of recording, uh, we have at our disposal an awful lot of, of technology, of software, of techniques, whereby we can improve on nature, shall we say, a little bit. Uh, and in, in, in what certainly is an, an honest and seemingly uh, good-spirited move, uh, it's become very common practice to use uh, software that corrects tuning particularly in vocalists. Uh, very famous uh, software of that variety, I think you can even download an iPhone app for it these days, uh, is what's called Auto-Tune. Um, R&B, or sorry, hip-hop artist, I guess I should say, uh, by the name of T-Pain, of course, is famous for using one all over the place and uh, getting this really strange electronic sound on his voice. But uh, you can uh, also, uh, with your iPhone and the correct app, uh, simulate that sound. Uh, anything you say into it is tuned automatically into uh, musical pitches. Uh, again, the, you know, the, the, the intent behind this seems to be noble. Uh, that is, you're going to the trouble of recording a record, and just in the same way that you do several takes to make sure that the, the performance is spot on, and you perhaps edit and fuss around to correct little mistakes and tidy up the sound a little bit. Uh, it, in that way, uh, it's become common practice to use vocal correction techniques or software, such as Auto-Tune or any number of other tuning softwares that improve on nature, that correct your pitch so that it's absolutely dead-on accurate. If I may, we'll do a little demonstration with a fairly familiar voice. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 174. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Not bad, not bad. But if I were a record producer in a big studio in Los Angeles, I'd probably try something a little more like this. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show number 174. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Okay, well, maybe not. The point being that that's all plug-and-play software. There's no knowledge, skill, programming, or anything required to do that. Basically just feeding the sound of Tony's voice into a particular preset sound processor to generate not only a slightly more musical sound to his voice, but uh, some accompanying uh, harmony singers to go along with him. Add a couple of prepackaged drum beats and you've got, well, whatever that was. This, of course, was a fairly crude example of a pitch correction software in action, Tony's performance notwithstanding. Uh, the professional-grade software and equipment is at the point where it's virtually impossible to tell that the voice you're listening to has been so processed, that is, has been altered electronically in any way. It sounds like a natural voice, except the pitch is spot on. 
What does this mean? Well, is it any worse than any studio processing technique that's used to clean up or improve or polish the sound of recording? Not really. But something a little insidious is happening, too, in that uh, the skill of a singer to sing accurately, to sing on key, has become almost unimportant. To be fair, most of the people that you're hearing singing on records, on the uh, CDs, uh, on the radio, are probably pretty decent singers. The scary fact is, however, they don't have to be. They can be very poor singers. Uh, they can be barely able to carry a tune as it is, and can be made to sound quite polished by this sort of software. So would you like to know what else has been going on with your music when you were asleep? Well, let me refer to Premier Guitar, um, Guitar Magazine, of course, uh, their March 2010 issue. There's a, an editorial column uh, by a gentleman by the name of John Bollinger, uh, and it's called Stealing Our Music Bit by Bit. And I want to read a little bit of this to you because it's quite interesting stuff. The limbic system... One of the oldest parts of our brain manages our fight-or-flight chemicals. Sound is one of the strongest triggers for the limbic system, more so than sight. When our primitive ancestors sat in their caves and heard a twig break, their limbic system kicked in, asking, threat or no threat, assessing the world to ensure survival. Now, in addition to fight-or-flight, the limbic system supports a variety of functions, including emotion by influencing the endocrine and autonomic nervous systems, which interconnect with the brain's pleasure center think sex and recreational drugs. In short, sound can slip through the back door of our brains through the limbic system and stimulate us in a way that sex or drugs would, which explains why sex, drugs, and rock and roll are so often linked together. When we listen to music, we experience something that affects us on a profound chemical level straight into our limbic system. Neurotransmitters only respond after stimulus reaches a certain threshold. Now, there's a threshold of sound quality that stimulates our limbic system. Poor quality sound will be heard, but not give us the emotional response that high quality sound will. Now, basically, he goes on to explain that because an MP3, which contains something like 90% less data, less information than an analog recording or the in-person experience of live music, that they are literally incapable of stimulating the limbic system the way that music can and does and arguably should. Basically, that is that if we're listening to MP3 versions of music, um, MP3s incorporate what's a type of data compression. Basically, because there's so much going on in an audio recording, it takes up a lot of memory on your computer. What they do to uh, help reduce that is compress the data. So basically, that uh, the data only contains the most obvious elements of the sound, the loudest elements of it. So the drum beat, maybe, is there in a way that the gently plucked guitar in the background is not so obvious. To save space, they cut out the stuff that isn't as obvious and just let you hear the most upfront, immediate things. That's great for saving space on the computer, but according to what John is talking about in this article, it's not so good for your enjoyment of the music. 
to quote John again, although music is more available than ever, people don't listen to it like they used to, sitting around the old hi-fi for hours, because our bodies are not reacting to this emotionally depleted content. Modern technology gives us an imitation of music while stealing the emotional subtext of music bit by megabit. But don't despair, folks. There is good news in the world of science fiction music. Kino Studios in 2010 released the newly more complete than ever uh, restored version of the classic uh, Fritz Lang film uh, Metropolis. Uh, this is owing to some footage that came to light from the Museo del Cine uh, in uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina uh, that uh, an original nearly uncut version of the film was found uh, w- containing nearly half an hour of material that had long since assumed to be completely lost, destroyed, never to be found again. So, wonderful, wonderful news. If you haven't seen this film, you really, really must if you're a fan of old science fiction film or classic science fiction theater. Metropolis, of course, is is a must, and this is an absolutely joyous, stunning new version of this film. The picture quality is a little rough in places, but... You know, the story has a continuity, has a flow, has a more depth and, and, and complexity than, than ever before. It's really quite something. Um, interestingly enough, uh, according to the notes from the 2010 release uh, from Kino Studios, or Kino International, that is, The Complete Metropolis, uh, some film notes here by a gentleman by the name of Bruce Bennett. And I quote, the acquisition of Gottfried Huppert's actual 1927 musical score folio from the premiere performance of the film provided the key to accurately putting the pieces of Metropolis back together again. With the original script and any editing or continuity notes from the production all long gone, Huppert's score remains the sole surviving document, confirming the timing and placement of shots and scenes. Huppert's handwritten notes on the score itself became vital narrative cues, confirming the complete Argentine negatives blueprint. Now, how cool is that? How cool is that? Something as simple as handwritten notes on uh, something not quite so simple as the original score to the film turned out to have an unexpected use. That is because no other documents, uh, scripts, screenplays, any of that sort of thing, were available to guide the restoration of the film with this new footage. Uh, They were actually able to refer to the composer's original score notes and where he had indicated various musical cues along the the context of this thing to help line the music up with the uh, for the performers, that is, of course, and and uh, you know, later recordings, to, to line it up with what was happening on screen, that became uh, a valuable ally in uh, restoring this great piece of science fiction cinema. So, what else can I say other than that's uh, that's a, a, a terrific example of music coming to the rescue? I have to confess to enjoying silent films such as Metropolis for their silence, at least silence in the sense of dialogue. Nothing is being spoken in the literal sense, but instead evoked by the imagery of the film and just as much by the music. Now, to that end, I'd like to present some 
evocative music indeed by a gentleman by the name of Peter Claren. Uh, Peter composes instrumental music and has provided, uh, kindly enough, quite a quite a large supply of music uh, that uh, I intend to play on the show in coming months. You'll certainly hear some more from Peter. Uh, but for today, uh, we're going to give him the spotlight and his piece, Space Sailing.
That was Space Sailing by Peter Claren. Well, where do you suppose this all leaves us? Uh, listening to MP3 approximations of music, hollow and devoid of emotional content or impact, featuring vocalists who can't sing on key without computer assistance? I don't think it's really as bad as all that. As far as pitch correction and those sorts of uh, recording techniques are concerned, they are just that. They're recording techniques. They're, they're tools in the toolbox. They are not what define the music. They are simply ways of, of capturing or communicating it. Quite honestly, a little more on-key singing isn't uh, necessarily a bad thing. As far as MP3s are concerned, uh, perhaps it is true that uh, they lack the emotional impact of an analog recording such as an LP record. Uh, honestly, I believe they do. I'm a fan of LP records. They just feel better somehow. That having been said, I've derived plenty of enjoyment from listening to my favorite music on MP3s and uh, continue, uh, intend to continue doing so. I don't feel like they're less enjoyable, necessarily because of that. They're just another way to enjoy music, and for that matter, if they're allowing more and varied enjoyment by more people and more circumstances, then I can hardly call that a bad thing. To end things on a bit of a philosophical note, I tend to believe that the spirit of music is what's being communicated properly when someone enjoys music. Uh, that is to say, it's not a matter of the recording technique or the format or anything that defines it, but simply that the spirit of the performer and the performance is coming through in a way that moves the listener. In the way of Zen guitar, Philip Toshio Sudo advises, go down the path as far as you can, but never lose sight of the beginning. In the end, the purity and openness of the white belt is where you want to return. So to recap, wear the white belt, Pick up your guitar, tune, play. But for goodness sake, record it for us so the rest of us can hear, okay? Well, we're about to lose signal, so uh, thanks once again for tuning in to this transmission. Be sure to tune in next time for some space opera and a few paper cutouts. For Starship Sofa, I'm David Bradshaw. Turn on your radios, folks. David, that's fantastic. You know, I knew when I heard I was actually out walking the dogs when I, I listened to David's little recording there. And when that, when my voice and he tried to, even the best software in the world struggles with a Geordie accent. So, David, that just made me smile. Thank you so much. You know, I kind of picture David as well as this like lone DJ, you know, on one of these kind of outstations, like station in the middle of the universe, just by himself, just playing the tunes and still. Harking back to the analogue times. I'm an MP3 man myself, but David, you can definitely tell he's an analogue guy. That was fantastic, David. So we come into Starship Sova's interrogations, and this week it is Tanith Lee. Tanith Lee was on, if anyone's wondering, show 127 of Starship Sova's she came on with a fantastic story called The Beautiful and the Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald and it was narrated by J.J. Campanella. Please I'll pop a link on to Tanith's side, do pop over there and say hello. So, 
Talent Lee, I would just like to ask you, are you a science fiction writer? I am, but amongst a million other things. I also write horror fantasy, historical novels, contemporary novels, young children's work, young adults' work, plays, TV scripts. But yes, amongst all that, that's definitely one of the things I am. Tell me about your childhood. Oh, wow. Well, it is a combination of horrible and wonderful. I had wonderful parents who were professional ballroom dancers, um, and they were both incredibly beautiful. And when I was at the first couple of horrible schools to which inadvertently they had to send me because they didn't have any money, and we were always moving where the work was, because they used to teach dancing as well. Um, we used to live in, in people's flats in the spare room or various things like this. It was all quite peculiar. But um, in these dreadful schools, um, the kids, when they saw my parents, they'd say to each other, who are they? Who are they? And I'd say, they're my parents. No, they're not. And this was when I would be attacked yet again because I'm afraid I was bullied. I was one of those traditional kids that got bullied a lot. Um, so that was that. And in this first succession of awful schools, um, I didn't learn to read. I've realized since that I'm slightly dyslexic, not horribly, but enough to make that a problem. And I, I was the only child in this dreadful school that couldn't read. My father taught me. He taught me in about a month. I don't know how he did it. My brain is blank to most of it out. So I think it was probably quite strict and stern. But my God, he did it. He was a genius, absolute genius, marvellous writer himself, actually, never published, unfortunately. My mother also wrote, and she was published a little bit. Um, but he taught me to read, and so from being the child who couldn't read, I was the best reader in the school, and I won prizes, and good. For which, of course, I also got bullied, but never mind. Um, so that was us, and we were moving, we had this sort of peripatetic life, moving from place to place where the work was. And... My, my life was full of the sort of horror of the awful outdoor aspects of, of life and environment. And some of the restrictions also, I have to say, of living in other people's places a lot of the time. But they, my, my mother introduced me to myth and fairy story and terrific humor, mad humor and irony. And my father introduced me, not only teaching me to read, but he introduced me to Shakespeare and Chekhov and Rachmaninoff and Shostakovich and Prokofiev and that to me, I mean, this was one of the most magical things in my life. It, it still is most wonderful. So a strange childhood, which was a combination, as I say, of, of a bit of the abyss, which so many people have to go through, unfortunately, and this wonderful thing with my parents. When I was older, I managed to get into a very, very good grammar school where I had, I just had the most, it wasn't perfect, of course, because it was school. I mean, how awful you have to get up very early and travel around in ridiculous uniform and, and do games, which were appalling. Um, until I got interested in football. They didn't teach us football, unfortunately, but it, it did cheer me up a bit when I was doing hockey. I used to pretend it was football, and I did actually manage to score goals, and the games mistresses nearly fainted. But this school did teach me. It taught me a lot about history and a lot about religion in various forms, fascinating forms. And it taught me wonderful literature and enough French, which I never learned to speak, and I've tried three times very seriously to learn French, 
can't just can't do it. It may be the dyslexia again, but it taught me enough to know that the French language is wonderful and sometimes be able to read it a bit. So from the from the abyss into the sort of heights, great. So that was my childhood. But all the all the really wonderful things came from both my parents. How did you get started in the science fiction genre? Ah, well, again, this was my mother, because along with the myth and the fairy tale, she loved science fiction, which, of course, included fantasy. It was all called science fiction then. And our house, and all these things were lost in our moves. It was such a shame. I have a nasty suspicion that some of them may have been sold because my parents were terribly poor. But we had a marvelous paperback collection of virtually everything, all the really wonderful science fiction, the sort of... 40s, 50s, 60s. It was astounding. And my mother, again, introduced me to Ray Bradbury and people like that. The real masters, Sturgeon, who my father also very much liked. And I was just so fascinated by it. I, this was the other thing. I didn't learn to read until I was nearly eight. And when I was nine, I started writing. And my blithering attempts, from quite early on, they were definitely, it was into myth, it was into fairy stories, it was into werewolves, and it was into science fiction. So this came from uh, my mother, initially, the, the, the passionate interest, which I had and still have, though I must admit, I'm rather locked in the past. I still, my great heroes are a lot of people that are now, as indeed I am, quite old. But she was the one that turned me on to the science fiction. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Mm. Well, I, I don't know because I have about nine million styles and I, I'm influenced also by a lot of other writers far outside the genre like Graham Greene and uh, Mary Renault and people like that uh, who also came from my mother, incidentally. Um, but inside science fiction... Certainly Ray Bradbury, very, very much. Theodore Sturgeon, Fritz Leiber, Asimov too, and obviously Clark. And John Wyndham, who, to my mind, writes in a very, very basic way. But what a storyteller. And his great classics, The Chrysalids, Day of the Triffids, all those wonderful things. Midwich Cuckoos, indeed, which it's got to be one of the most frightening things I think anyone's ever written. It manages to combine science fiction and horror, beautiful genre cross. So, I, I would say them. There's probably a few I've forgotten, not because I forget them, but it's trying to call them all to mind at once. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Well, there were a lot inside the genre and out. I have to say, if I made it outside any genre like that, one of the books I'd love to have written was The King Must Die by Mary Renault. And a fantasy book, actually, is Swords of Lankmar by Fritz Leiber, which is just incredible. I have to include a horror novella also by Arthur Macken, who I deeply admire, uh, which is called The Terror. I think it's one of the most frightening and logical and surprising things that's ever been written. But of all the wonderful, wonderful, gorgeous, beautifully written things of Ray Bradbury, just for its strangeness, its beauty, its political prophecy, Fahrenheit 451, every time. What would be the one question you could ask a science fiction writer? <laughs> right. Um, 
I, I probably ask them all sorts of things, but I think, I think probably, because I do know quite a few science fiction writers now that I admire. And what I tend to ask them is, have you finished your book yet? When can I get hold of it? Because that's what I want. I want, I want the entertainment and I want the excitement and I want to see what they've done. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Ah, well, of course, again, it's not really in preference. It's along with all the other classes. Um, when I get an idea for something or a feeling for something, it, it, it feels as though it comes to me. I mean, I may pick it up from something I've read or seen. I can remember once standing in the kitchen with my husband and we were making dinner, and I, I, I never wanted to have children. I think I'd have been an awful mother. I, I sort of said, oh, you know, it's probably a good thing I never had children. And then I said, but of course, if they'd been cats, I would have done. And I got an idea from that, which is called Tiger Eye, and was published in Asimov's science fiction story. So you get things like that, but sometimes they just come as a feeling, a sort of a, an image, a thought, even sometimes a phrase. And science fiction will come in exactly the same way. It will just arrive with... Um, an ambience, or a question, or a niggle, something that sticks inside of your mind. And sometimes it takes a very, very long time to gestate and come out. And sometimes it's immediate. You have to do it instantly. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Um, it's like, oh, again, I, I hate to generalize, but it's true for me. It's like everything to me. They're all difficult. They're all impossible. And if one stopped to think about it, one wouldn't go near it. you think, how dare I? And you'd pull the pillows over your head and curl up, and that would be it. wouldn't do anything. It's just sheer cheek. That's what makes me do it. I, I think I want to write something about another planet. Right, I'm going to write it. Whether I get it right or not, I don't know. But I always do my best. And if I do my best, I am happy with what I've done, even if years after I'll look at it and think, oh, Lord, I'm never ashamed of it because the mistakes in there are honest and they were, they were done through enthusiasm. So, um, but I suppose that the only thing which I sometimes admire from other writers in science fiction, which I don't for myself like doing and therefore don't do very much, is the sort of cold scientific science fiction. I will happily invent a whole, hopefully, logical scenario for why a certain thing could happen. But it probably could happen, and probably does happen, and probably there is a wonderful scientific process, which I would never understand if someone explained it to me. So I would think those are probably what should be the no-go areas that I find difficult, but I don't find them difficult because I just make it all up, and that's one of the joys of being a writer. Although, again, I have to say as well, I never feel I'm making it up. I always feel as though I'm being given it. It comes to me, these wild ideas, which I can then follow. Does it get any easier? Um, let me think about that. Um, yes and no. It gets easier because you get used to, well, I mean, by now, having written since nine very intensely, I'm very used to it. It gets easier that way mechanically. 
Although I find as I get older, also mechanically, sometimes I get tired. I used to be able to write till four in the morning sometimes, and I certainly haven't done that for years. I couldn't. But the, I think the belief in knowing that you can actually do it because you've done it. I've done it so many times before. I think that builds up quite quickly, so that makes things easier. One has the confidence, but then again, I used to steam in from the beginning. I think that the the hardest things are sometimes looking at something that you want very much to explore, and you do explore it, and you think, I have done this before. I have done exactly this thing before. All right, it's quite different, but I have done it before. And I'm afraid I will always look at that and I will think, well, if you feel you've done it at a different angle and it's a different story, and to my mind they are, then I will say, that's that's fine, that's the way you're doing that one now. And of course, we're all supposed to have just a few themes, aren't we, that we stick to in obsessions. And I think that's quite true of me, me in many respects. So it's, but probably in some ways it gets harder and it also gets easier, the two things at the same time. Describe your daily working day. <laughs> you sure you want to know? Uh, okay. Um, I used to be, when I was younger, and I lived on my own before I met my husband, I was very happy living on my own because I had lots of friends who I saw when I was feeling sociable and they were. Um, I used to get up reasonably early, not terribly early, but reasonably early, and I usually used to be working by 10, 10.30 in the morning having done anything else that needed doing first. I would I would work pretty solidly until lunchtime, then I would have lunch. If I needed to go out for something, then obviously the afternoon would go. In the evening, I was always inclined to call up people I hadn't seen, take phone calls, possibly do letters, things like that. And after dinner, I would often read or listen to music. But, as I said, I would sometimes go back to work and I would work until the early hours of the morning quite happily. I had the physical stamina then to do that. Because I write longhand, I always have, I still have to. It has to be typed up afterwards because my writing is illegible. But um, as I began to live with somebody else, admittedly also a, a writer and an artist, um, there, were, there were more lovely distractions during the day, like having lunch with somebody and talking, and having dinner with somebody and talking. And having breakfast with somebody and talking. So my routine has changed a bit. And also, as I said, I can't now work quite as long physically as I used to, usually. Although I must admit, the other night I got the idea for a short story and I was working away at midnight. But it luckily, it was very short and it came very quickly and I only had to tidy it up the next day. But that is extremely unusual now. So... My my only problem is that I've found, and I was always like this, and I've heard this from so many writers, even if you are on a roll and the thing is pouring through you, for some reason, for most writers, and this is true of me as well, you will make any excuse not quite to sit down, pick the thing up, pick the pen up, and start working. So you go around the workroom and you think, hmm, I must, I must just put that book out, have a look at later, because I'll need that for later on in what I'm doing. Or, um, oh, look, oh, there's a bird in the garden. Isn't that lovely? And, of course, there are always beautiful things in the garden to see, so it was 10 minutes in the window. And you do a bit of work, and then you think, hmm, 
done half a page. Oh, I think I'll have a cup of tea. And I always make a joke about this, but it's true. I, I very much like tea. I'm, I'm, I think I'm addicted to mint tea and also black leaf tea, what they call builder's tea. And so I make tea. I make quite a bit of tea. And there's always this excuse. And, of course, there's the occasional glass of wine as well. And uh, I always think it's better to have tea because it takes longer to make it. So this is sort of skiving off. But on the other hand, the thoughts go on. So while I'm making my tea, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about what I'm doing. So my mind's working, even if I'm not. But that sort of is my, my working day now. I tend to finish up generally about 6 o'clock. And then it's sort of thoughts of dinner and um, possibly watching a film on TV or if heaven then there is something interesting on TV, which I must admit, almost all we actually watch on television, either of us, that's my husband John and me, are um, history programs, which are often wonderful, and occasionally nature programs, but also are what we really like is Doctor Who, because we were both definite fans of Doctor Who. And when it came back, we were both very concerned but our concerns soon vanished in an absolute pan of delight, and we're very, very pleased with it. Um, particularly, I have to say, with David Tennant, because he was amazing. He brought something to it, and I think even my great heroes, uh, Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee, perhaps didn't quite bring the sort of authority of someone who'd been a professional actor for a long time in, in so-called serious work. And really, really startling. And what they've done wonderful effects and often amazing dialogue and the whole thing being treated as, a, as an epic production and wonderful people in it like Alex Kingston and uh, Catherine Tate when she was there and lovely and I can never remember this actress's name and it's unforgivable but to me she's Sarah Jane and I have seen her in other things and she's excellent but yes Sarah Jane lovely so great fun with that but that's it so we I sort of pack up generally about six o'clock and then the rest of my evening is just being entertained in other ways. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? <laughs> yeah, well, now, what can I say? I've never really done anything that strange except one time, and that was not for science fiction. As, as I've said, I write lots of different kinds of things. Um, I will add the proviso that the thing I was researching, which was my one historical novel so far, was about the French Revolution. And I originally conceived the idea that this might be possible to do as science fiction. Because what went on was so strange. It could have been. It was like activities on another planet, as indeed so much that happens in this world seems to be when one really looks at it. And I went to France, and I had a look at various places, very important places to do for the main character. And obviously, I was also in Paris. Any excuse, I mean, good Lord. And it was wonderful, but I did research very hard. And I had a friend then, a French friend, and she was my interpreter. And it was, it was amazing. But I knew I had to go and see the prison in which the people I was writing about, which is Danton, and uh, my main character in the book, who was a real character, not very well-known, Camille Desmoulins, had been imprisoned um, just before they were guillotined. So I had to go and look at this place, and I knew I was going to have a problem with it. And the day before, I actually had to go and had booked to go and go around for the tour and have a look. Um, 
I said to my friend, oh, let's, let's just walk around outside and we'll just have a, have a look at it from the outside. Uh, so we walked around outside. And something happened to me. I was so immersed in this book. I was so part of that character as much as anyone can be, I think, who isn't actually them at that time. I became absolutely panic-stricken. Now, I'm a complete maniac, but I do not normally do things like this. I took off. I didn't scream, but I took off and I ran. Now, I'm not a runner. When I was very young, I could run very fast for short distances, and I think I just recaptured that. I left my poor astounded friend, who, being French, was very sophisticated about it. But I rushed around the whole of that block. I ran. I ran so fast. And when I came back on the other side... I said to her, I'm terribly sorry because she tried to follow me and then she realized she couldn't keep up. I'm terribly sorry, I've got to go over the river. There's a bar over there. I've got to go in there. I used to smoke one. I've got to go in there and have a drink, an alcoholic drink, and a cigarette. And, of course, the sort of drink, I can't remember what I had. I don't think it was wine. It was something they wouldn't have had then, or not in that form. And, of course, they certainly didn't have cigarettes then. They had pipes, but they didn't have cigarettes. So I flew over the bridge, and she was extremely good about it because I had sort of said to her, I'm very tied into this book. I always am with my work. And I sat in the bar, and it was all right, and I calmed down. And, of course, I apologized, but she was very, very nice about it. And I thought, how on earth am I going to go into this place? And I've got to go into the actual prison. Well, the following day, I went there, and I went in, and I had no trouble at all. I didn't feel any panic. I felt nothing. I felt cool, calm, collected, very, very interested, took lots of notes, and I was fine. I got exactly what I needed. I have to say, and I've written about this, the thing I felt in there, it wasn't that dark. The air seemed to be black. It was as though the air was full of shadow. It was still there. You could still feel it. I'm not particularly highly psychic. It will take an awful lot for me to feel something. I have once or twice in various places, and I certainly did in there, but it didn't throw me. So I did my, my mad scenario of panic and terror before I did, so it didn't interfere with my research. But that, I have to say, is the strangest thing I have ever done when researching. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? They're all different. And they're all the same. I, I hate the idea of genres. I, I have no problem with the idea that there are different kinds of work. But one does get ghettoized. And I've experienced this so much in my writing life of being told virtually, no, you can't write this because it's not what you usually write. And, of course, I have loads and loads of things which have never been published. Most of them, actually, in the past, eventually always did. But I think... If you're a writer, you may want to write different things. Not every writer does. Some writers are very, very happy to stay inside that, what I call the genre ghetto. And if you're happy to stay inside, it is not a ghetto. But if you want to do other things, it becomes one. Um, so I, 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 I greatly believe in crossing genres, and so many people do. If you take Arthur C. Clarke, um, his wonderful novel, City and Stars, that is pure science fiction. It's perfectly legitimate. But it's a fantasy novel as well. And I don't know, if you take something like, as I've said, Midwich Cuckoos, uh, The Bay of the Triffids by Wyndham. This, this is pure science fiction, but it's also horror. So everybody always does it. I mean, well, probably not everybody, but we all do it to some extent. I think that writing is about 
people, things can be about animals, people who can actually write about animals in that certain way, which can be quite magical. It isn't always, but if you get it right, yes, they can be some wonderful things. For example, Watership Down, extraordinary book. I mean, what is that? Is that fantasy? Is it science fiction? Is it, well, it's rabbit literature. It's amazing. But yes, uh, they are, of course, different. Genres are different. The genres are different. But I think they should all cross and have dialogue with each other. And there must be avenues to let things come through from other places. I think the thing, hardest thing, and I don't mean in the sense of difficult, but the hardest thing, the hardest, most steely thing in science fiction, and what makes it so very different in itself, although fantasy has elements of it, is its predictive quality. Because so much, as we all know, who read science fiction, has been predicted. And it's almost as if in some cases, because it's been written about it, can't now happen. We should all be flying into airplanes which don't make any noise and don't cause any pollution from our wonderful apartments, which also have indoor courtyards full of beautiful flowers from other worlds and heaven knows what. We should colonize other planets beautifully and non-pollutively. We should be far out in space exploring things and we should have cured all disease and everybody should be perfect in wind and limb and everything else. But we're not, but we've predicted it. And I think there is an enormous air with some of us of sort of ironic disappointment because what happened, we saw these things being predicted. It was perfectly logical and very believable in the hands of great writers, most of whom a lot of, a lot of us have read. Happened, happened. So we're still waiting for that last chapter. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Well, uh, somewhat what I've just said, because although it can be disillusioning, it, it gives you enormous hope, and it does open up the imagination. I also think it can, as in Ray Bradbury's book, which I mentioned before, Fahrenheit 541, which is the most extraordinary novel in so many ways. It, it is a, it's a warning. It's a dreadful warning. And you take something like um, Orwell's 1984, which is definitely a contemporary horror novel made into science fiction. And that is that is a, a frightful warning, and you, one even sees little elements of that. Uh, I have for years. The, the sort of um, oh, things have improved because nine um, percent has gone down to three, and it's at least an improvement going down to three, or as they say in the book, gone up to three. All that sort of thing, the warning element, the the, the take on what is happening now and what could be happening and what may happen. It's a, it's a very, very strong, very important area, and I do believe certain countries at certain times have been very unpleasant about it and tried to ban it, but of course it will always break out, as all these things do. It's, it's, it's a way of opening up the mind in, in a certain manner, which perhaps other things don't do, and that's both reading it and writing it, even thinking about it, probably. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Um, I suppose it has here and there, but that's probably only in the hands of people whose writing, they may have been very good, but it didn't appeal to me, therefore I couldn't connect with it. And normally in a case like that, I, I don't go on with it, so it doesn't disappoint me for very long. Very occasionally, I can't think of an example of this, but it's happened in, in all works, of many works of literature, I've tried something and thought, oh, 
I don't like this, but something's made me keep on. And after about 50 pages, which is sort of as far as I'll go, you think, oh, no, wait a minute, I've got this now. And you get it, and it's amazing, can't put it down. But I would say no. No, life can be disappointing, but science fiction isn't. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Oh, yes. Always, as again, in all literature. But certainly science fiction, yes, a predictive medium. They haven't predicted it all yet, and it certainly hasn't all happened yet. Yes. Oh, yes, keep it coming, because it's a, again, it's a wonderful medium. And we need these sort of colours stirred into our minds. We need these things to be there, to challenge us. As, as again, one gets in other types of literature, but those sort of hard nose, that steely element that I mentioned, Yes, we, we, there's lots of new ground. You see, the thing is, and I'm sure you, you'll be aware of this, that one can't even know what that new ground is. It has yet to be predicted, and the great science fiction writers will predict it. So we have all that ahead of us. One other piece of new ground that needs to be covered, though very definitely the science fiction and the other types of literature, which seem to have fallen into disfavor because in the beginning science fiction had a, had a time of being a golden genre that was respected, partly because it did have so many wonderful writers working in it. We need to get that ground back of respect. People need to stop borrowing away and saying, no, no, I can't read that, it's rubbish. Yes, it's rubbish. Of course there's rubbish in the genre. There is rubbish in all forms of literature. Far too much, unfortunately. It is indeed not even literature. I always feel very sad, and I, I think she's probably got very good reasons, because she's a writer I very much admire, Margaret Atwood. But apparently she really doesn't want to think that she's written science fiction. But of course she has. If we take The Handmaid's Tale, which is amazing, if we take Orange and Crake, which is extraordinary, absolutely terrifying and beautiful, that wonderful combination of beauty and horror that she gets in that, and it has its own complete logic. She Maybe she's not a science fiction writer per se, but it's one of the things she can do. So yes, more respect for the genre where the good writing is, and there is still an awful lot of very good writing in that genre. People should not be ashamed to think they've written it or try to pretend it's something else. Because although I don't believe in genres, it is a kind of a theme. It's probably one of the strongest ones of science fiction. It's entitled. It's entitled to wear that hat and indeed to have a crown on it. Tanith Lee, thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Tanner, thank you so much. That was a lovely interview and it was really nice to get to speak to Tan Flea. Next up is thriller writer who's just going from great guns, better and better, Jeff Carlson. As you know, he's had out Plague Year, Plague War, Plague Zone. We've played a number of stories on this show by Jeff. And as well, he's even been on interviewing as well. He's working with David Brin on that story as well, an ad- adventure novel called Connolly High. Go over to his website because he has free fiction there as well and he tells you he's got his blog about everything that's going on with himself as well. So please pop over to Jay Verse, the man himself. And this story is narrated by our very own 
Larry Santuro. And this is, you know, again, this is why Larry has won that award two years running. He just brings in a stellar performance. Fantastic. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Damned When You Do by Jeff Carlson. Read by Larry Santoro. It was not a virgin birth, I can tell you that much. Boy never could fly or stop bullets with his teeth. And those people who say he was 20 feet tall, they're full of it. He didn't have God on the phone either. I guess I'm not the one to say he wasn't Jesus come again, but if he was, then the books got everything mixed. There were signs before his birth. We had tremors, then record heat waves, drought, flood, drought again. Margie and me, we didn't think anything about it. The world was already going to hell in a handbasket. Every disaster was just business as usual. Earthquakes in China, nukes in Iran, war, poverty, hundreds of millions of people pumping carbon, whatever, into the sky. Everybody knowing it was causing global warming, but not changing their routines, not one bit. And I, I was one of them. In the documentaries, they always show L.A. freeways, New York taxi jams. My neighbors had a great time complaining how the crops and grazing were hard hit by out-of-season storms and dry spells, which they blamed on pollution caused by the same city people who needed our farms. But no one can say Jack Schofield isn't honest. (laughs) Well, I accept my share of it. It doesn't matter that all of southern Oklahoma has less people in it than downtown Hollywood or that I typically saw no more than five or six other trucks on my way to the feed shop. Poison is poison, like everyone. I just wanted to get about my business ASAP. I'm no preacher, and I I think we've all heard all we need about sin, destruction, salvation. And I I just want to set the record straight. See, he, he was my son... People called him everything from Savior to Satan in every language known to man. We named him Albert Timothy, after his grandfather. Margie and me are old-fashioned enough to believe in things like honor and respect, and we would have taught him so if we had had the chance. But we only met him twice. It's true, in a literal sense, that the world revolved around him, I think the real miracle lies in the fact that people revolved around him. From the news at the time, he wouldn't have thought that there was 12 decent folk left anywhere, and yet he grew to be strong, caring, smart, despite having every last one of six billion selfish apes as parents. Margie is a tough girl. That's that's why I married her. She didn't scream until our baby was all the way out of her... (laughs) The doctor yelled, too. I I thought the boy must have three arms or something, so I shoved a nurse to get a look at him. I think he was already tumbling toward the door like a little pink log. Then the first quakes knocked the building down. I I was thrown to the floor, and I I never did catch up. How did our infant son survive? Hmm? Well, utter strangers fed and changed him as he passed. Folks kept him warm with the clothes off their backs. They they emptied their wallets to get bottles and formula when store owners didn't put those things in their hands for free. After a few days, entire nations prepared for him, even even when his projected course was was nowhere near, because the projections weren't worth much. He usually rolled east to west, opposite of Earth's natural rotation, as, as, as if pushing the planet beneath him. 
but for the first few years, he wobbled north and south, seemingly just at random. And when he learned to walk, he jaunted from pole to pole as he chose. There's been a lot of talk from scientists, holy men, politicians. Well, believe what you want. The truth is nobody can explain him and nobody ever will. The proportions are all wrong. Flat out scary. In fact, like a flea spinning a ball the size and weight of Australia. Clocks, uh, calendars quickly became useless. One day would pass in 20 hours, uh, the next in 28 or 17. The seasons changed in a matter of weeks. There was just no way to ignore him. Wars stopped as he went by. Starving tribes in West Africa mashed their last handfuls of grain into mush for him. Why didn't he bruise to death? Well, microgravitational skins, they said. Uh, angels, they said. Before he was old enough to control it, some instinct or higher power wove him around buildings and cliffs and trees. And later in life, he walked the globe like a man on a spherical treadmill. When he was just four months old, he got stuck in a box canyon in Peru, and the whole world shuddered for three hours till a brave rancher went in on hands and knees and shoved him in the right direction. You'd think he would have had trouble keeping food down, rolling, always rolling, but eventually some big brain proved he was actually orbiting the sun as smooth as silk, while, while it was the planet itself that did the shifting up and back and sideways beneath him. And the oceans, and the rivers and lakes, he walked on water. As a baby, he returned to shore, hungry and stinking, wailing because no one had fed or, or changed him. Later, as a child, he went hog-wild, playing with dolphins and seals. And in the end, his only refuge was the sea. Of course, he had monstrous effects on weather, tides, shorelines, volcanoes. It is impossible to guess how many deaths he caused directly. Uh, yesterday, I heard a newsman say upwards of 20 million. More than a few people tried to kill him right off the bat, but twice as many protected him. He took a razor in the shoulder somewhere in Burma. A man shot him in the guts outside Madrid. Five doctors across Spain saved his life that time, and dozens more around the world contributed to the treatment. He just had a, an obvious way of pulling people together. For us, it started badly. Albert broke Margie's heart before she even really saw him, leaving his mother so fat. Well, Margie never did recover. She spent her days following him on the news, and pretty soon we had a TV and a computer in every room, not that she moved much off the couch. She just kept saying she, she hurt, even after Doc Hanley pronounced her fit. Well, people sent us things, money and things, mostly expecting us to keep these donations, but plenty more of them looking for a blessing. Uh, we were easier to track down than our boy, <laughs> easier to reach because the crowd around us was smaller. Some ladies wanted me... <laughs> I doubt I had much to do with what made Albert different, and, and that's a good thing. Can you imagine what the world would have done with two such boys? Well, well, suddenly we were richer than we'd ever expected. Um, I hated it. All the attention that came with it, we, we gave most of the money to charity, but that only seemed to brighten the media spotlight and triple the contributions coming in. 
And I had to quit my job at the feed shop. None of the reporters, those so-called holy pilgrims, ever, ever bought any feed or tack. They just got in the way, and they stole small items for souvenirs. And by the end of the first week, you couldn't find a pen to save your life. They'd taken every one. We had to calculate weights and costs in our heads. It made the bookkeeper crazy, so I quit before my boss had to ask which left me with nothing to do but hole up in our trailer with poor Margie as she talked to her TVs and her computers. I don't mean she talked to them the way those things are, like phones now. I mean she just laughed and chattered to herself as faces and maps flashed in the screen. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes she, uh, she cried, too. Always when there was footage of mothers trying to touch their babies against him or when the army lost track of him. None of those billion-dollar satellites were much good in the beginning because the, the cloud cover got too thick. Our boy never saw the sun or any real kind of sky until he was five. People say he backpedaled like crazy just so he could stare up at the clear patch for an instant. Nothing else surprised him. He knew everything about the human condition before he took his first step, which didn't happen until he was, what, three and a half. Some folks had the nerve to... To call him slow, but I'd like to see those full-grown fools stay on their feet if the world spun beneath them. He was fluent in more languages than you got fingers and toes. He was comfortable in twice as many cultures and always learning. He personally witnessed more geology and biology and all the other ologies than a football stadium packed with teachers. And Margie and me learned with him on the TV. So did billions of others, and we all saw too much to be ashamed of. No one could say hate stupidity and greed were new. The effects of such things had been in the papers our whole lives, but everybody said this baby made it personal for them. Hundreds of thousands of people tried to walk with him. Huge migrations rushed from the east side of every continent to the west and then charged back again to wait for his next arrival. Knowing where he'd come ashore was a challenge in the early days, but, but crowds formed thirty deep along hundreds of miles of coastline, just hoping He'd land near him. What else did they have to do while they were waiting except talk and make friends? Even during the migrations, most of them never got anywhere near the boy. And in fact, sometimes 10,000 people got detached from the rest and paraded off on their own, never knowing, never worried that they were without their Messiah. They were just walking together, and that was enough. Maybe I... Maybe I should have been among them. Might have helped Albert and me. For years, I puttered around our small trailer, feeling like an empty sack because he was so, so far outside my reach. When he was two, he passed within a mile of our place. But that only hurt more. All Lincoln County was buried in strangers, helicopters, hot dog vendors. It was the whole shebang. The dozens of times he touched through Oklahoma's borders felt almost as bad. I... I'd never been helpless before. More than one corporation wanted to fly me into Albert's path, but they, they, wanted, me, they wanted me to dress up in, in logos for corn chips or vacuum cleaners. That didn't seem right. And I was afraid. Taking care of Margie helped, helped fill the hollowness in me, but I was not a well man. Like millions of others, I had the nerve to, to envy him for being so powerful. Somehow we all forgot he'd never used the lavish homes he'd been given by every government in the world. Roofs and walls, you see, they were a danger to him. 
The elaborate playgrounds they built with train tracks and water slides, well, he, he could never play with any toy he couldn't carry. And he never had any friends either. I guess he had favorites everywhere and constantly tried to reach them, but more often than not he was blocked or distracted by new people with new problems. He was never alone. Not even, not even going to the bathroom. People actually fought over his leavings, his keepsakes, no matter how often he admonished them with a laugh and the promise to generate more. Times like those, it was easy to remember that Albert was just a kid. Eight-year-olds shouldn't rule the world. And that's how old he was when we first met him. We knew he was headed in our direction, of course. There were still some shows in the air that had nothing to do with Albert or the change he was making, but all of them dedicated at least a small window to his progress so they could keep their viewers from surfing off. Uh, Margie was watching her dramas and silly romantic stuff I'd encourage her to indulge in because, well, because it had nothing to do with our boy. I figured that was healthy. Then she screamed. I burned myself, rushing out of the kitchen. What? What? What is it? I <laughs> she could only point at the TV. He's coming straight at us, I said, stupidly, but the thought was too big to keep in my head. Straight at us. It wasn't until then that the growing din outside made some sense. Margie and me didn't bother much with the outside anymore, and I'd figure the noise for another of the concerts or revivals always going on in town, and when I pulled the drapes open... Yanked him shut again like a joker in one of her shows. There was a stampede of people more than a mile wide, bearing down on our trailer. At its head was our son. And the news vans, the dust cloud, looked like a, like a cape on a giant worm. Get up, I said. Margie was, was trying to scream again, but she couldn't breathe. She seemed like she was trying to look at me, too, but she couldn't pull her eyes away from the TV. Honey, please, I took her arm as gently as I could, with all that adrenaline in my veins. Get up. If you want to talk to your son, you'll have to get out there and move. Does this shirt match my good tie? Those same small-minded people who tut-tutted about how slow he'd been to, to walk were also free with their opinions about a boy who never visited his parents. But you have to remember, he didn't know us. And he wasn't used to thinking of any one place as being more special than the next. Also, the crowd was always in the way. You couldn't have blamed Albert if Margie disappointed him. She slobbered and screamed and pawed. And embarrassment made my body so heavy I could barely keep up. But his smile was a mystery, just like in that, that, that Lisa painting. His smile was patient and knowing. He seemed to understand everything about Margie's pain, and he was not afraid. We learned all about his empathy and genuine interest in people from the TV, but now that magic was real. It was hypnotizing. Walk with me, he said. We were already trudging alongside him, and his followers made sense of his invitation before we did. They backed off to give us some privacy. Albert was much leaner than he appeared on TV. Up close, his robes couldn't hide the fact that he was all angles and elbows. He, he was beautiful. He had Margie's black hair and dark eyes. He also had a ridiculous walk, like a kangaroo crossed with a drunk, bouncing and skipping, letting the earth zip by in between each step. Otherwise, we never would have been able to keep up. Nobody understood yet 
what it meant that he developed this level of control. I love you, he said. Margie screamed some more, his eyes locked with mine. I'm sorry I haven't visited before. Well, it's okay, son, it's okay. He smiled again, more of a grin this time like you'd expect on a boy. I need some fatherly advice, he said. For me? He just grinned. I remember it perfectly, the gritty taste of the dust, the rumbling crowd behind us, sunlight flashing on the camera lenses, his calm, strong words. For whatever it's worth, so help me. I said his idea sounded mighty fine. It took Albert most of a year because he started out careful, dodging back and forth across the equator, slowing the planet's rotation in unsteady spurts, foregoing meals and sleep to, to keep a schedule that only he knew. He riled up a storm, unlike anyone had ever seen a strata something way at the top of the sky. Fortunately, during his first years, every landmass in the world had shaken out at least a hundred years' worth of quakes. There were some small tidal waves. One big fault opened up in India, but all in all, it wasn't bad. The scientists lost a lot of weather balloons and robot planes trying to prove that he couldn't be doing what he was doing. And for the next 18 months, we had wicked, beautiful sunsets in the States, but not much sun. I was surprised at how little panic there was. He'd explained what he was doing, and people believed him. People thanked him everywhere. At that point, we'd only had a taste of the future we'd created, damning our grandchildren, but one taste was plenty. For ten years, we'd seen scorching summers and short, late winters. Fire ants had spread so far north they reached Idaho. New diseases were everywhere. Most of Africa was baked sterile, and other rainless hot spots had cropped up across Asia and California. Beachside cities and, in some places, whole countries were seeping under the rising oceans. And somehow he shook all the gases and carbon, whatever, out of the atmosphere. At the same time, he was also talking up a storm. Albert, you see, was in a unique position to change things. People loved or feared him, but he always had everyone's attention because he talked with everyone. He knew everything about those few who hid from him. He personally visited the fat cats who'd been sitting on clean technology because their fortunes came from dirty energy. He visited them again and again with the eyes of global television staring right over his shoulder. You've already got more money than you can know what to do with, he said. It was practically that simple. Albert started things going, and the, the new economies proved stronger than the old. Hydro-what's-it engines aren't any faster than oil-driven, but they don't pollute, which saved billions of dollars in health and cleanup costs. Well, that didn't happen overnight, but the benefits were as obvious and as dizzying as a stack of presents under a Christmas tree. He visited warlords and dictators, too, especially the Chinese leaders, probably because they controlled so much land and so many people that he couldn't avoid their policies for more than a day at a time. Albert even brought several of those hard men with him around the globe, pushing him in heavy-duty wheelchairs he'd designed for exactly this purpose. We don't know what they talked about, but he showed them a borderless world, showed them their real size. Meanwhile, the weather in Oklahoma became like I remembered it as a boy. 
steady, predictable. We sent our crop surpluses to places where they couldn't shake their trouble, countries where civil war or famine held sway for generations. And there were some things, well, some things he, he couldn't fix. Africa had reached the peak of its AIDS plague, and then something like seven out of every ten people were dying or seriously ill. Murderers and rapists still walked among us. Several endangered species had dwindled to such small numbers that they were doomed, regardless of any new rescue effort, no matter how well-funded or stocked with volunteers. None of that ruined the sense of hope and cooperation sweeping the planet, though. Some, some people said he was an incarnation of Earth itself, sent to scare us into taking responsibility before it was too late. But Albert didn't want to be worshipped. He just wanted to stop seeing so much pain. He hadn't quite turned eleven yet when he took on that crazy bastard up north. Empathy and trust are not universal traits. Albert taught us that we were poorer because of it. He taught us to pity, but he also believed in taking action. Uh, that madman in Korea had ruled his miserable, half-frozen hunk of land for twenty years, building nukes, selling nukes, starving his own people so he could put more money into the walls and guns that kept them in and everyone else out. Albert attempted to meet with this man for years, but he was rebuffed. He, he sent messages and was met with silence. At last, he issued commands. More silence. He stopped the world. Albert put that bastard's territory in eternal darkness, even as he managed to bring sunshine to neighboring countries on a regular basis. It must have felt like God himself cursed him. Weeks passed, and our son exhausted himself, only catnapping, taking a bite or two when folks pleaded with him. It seemed to be working. The TV and the net were abuzz with praise from the leaders of the world, issuing the madman terms, promising relief to his beleaguered people. But that sick bastard, he hunkered down in his luxurious shelters more than once before. He must have been used to the dark. I think it was pride that drove him to such extremes. They call it ABC War. Atomic, biological, chemical. The missiles were duds that got no further than Hawaii and often went wide or fell short into, into Japan, but the madman's agents had spread worldwide with three low-grade fission devices and more vials and test tubes than anyone could count. Albert tried to keep the airborne disease from spreading. He ran for days, stumbling, cutting his leg on the Himalayas, twisting an ankle in the Amazon Delta. It just wasn't enough. Three days of massive retaliation from the U.S. and Britain demanded even more effort from our son, or else another hundred million souls might have been killed by fallout. Revenge was no consolation to Albert or to the billions of wounded survivors. He was stoned in the Philippines, shot twice in New York, two areas that had taken the brunt of it. Albert renounced his political agenda and every good work he'd done in a terrified, sobbing message that was almost lost in the chorus of outrage. He retreated to the oceans in the cold night side of the planet. He denied himself sunshine and human companionship for two years, running whenever planes and ships came after him. There were sightings during this self-exile, some of which must have been real. 
Many more were surely hoaxes and lies, like that woman in South Dakota and those German cults. He, he wouldn't have visited landlocked areas. I still, still have nightmares for my son. The loneliness he must have experienced isn't something I can put into words. Albert snuck across the narrowest stretches of Central America, picked his way through the densely laid islands of Malaysia and sprinted across Africa, but the chance of running into people on that broad continent was frequently too much for him. Most days the world shifted wildly as he ran south around Africa's horn. What he ate? We don't know. Fish, I guess. Bugs and fruit. He needed fresh water, too, like any human being. Maybe he conjured it up from the sea somehow. I think, though, too often he did without. Hiding for seven hundred days would have been a sad existence for any boy, but it must have been a form of death for someone whose only home had been the crowd. Finally, he, he tried to come back. He was smart enough to pull off the trick of resurrection, but I guess we were too dumb to let him. Many people had yet to lose hold of their grieving. A hundred million lives was a heavy price to pay to get some sense knocked into us, but in a lot of ways the world was much improved. The big war had put a stop to border conflicts and most ethnic strife. Africa was still suffering its AIDS die-off, and China wasn't having a smooth time with its new cultural revolution, but we had clean industry and transportation. The global economy was roaring like crazy. There was also quite a few less people to share this wealth, although we were well into a worldwide baby boom. Even Margie and me were trying. At least she thought we were. I, I had myself a, a vasectomy years before, paying thirty times the regular fee to buy the doctor's silence. Margie was doing better. Her TVs and computers weren't exactly dusty, but now she only spent an hour or two following her dramas. After the war, she'd found the chance to mother someone at last. We spent our fortune on an orphanage soup kitchen, and she became part of more lives than I could count. Somehow she always knew their first names. She often came home humming. I was doing better, too. I had a job again. Good, hard paying work at a dairy farm on top of helping out around the soup kitchen. The labor shortage was so bad there was even room for Albert's father. <laughs> the cows didn't care who I was, and I pulled overtime without complaining. It, it even got to the point where my boss would offer me a beer at the end of the day, and we'd talk some. Well, no, no big questions or personal stuff, though. He, though he must have been tempted. I was an ordinary Joe again, and I, and I liked that just fine. Everything changed when Albert came ashore near Washington. It's important to know why Margie acted the way she did. The reporters and the crazies ate up our small lives again. Having everything taken from her a second time, having her new life destroyed, they shoved her right off the fine edge she'd been walking. Suddenly we were right back in our cage. She couldn't call her friends because our lines were jammed. Even her TV shows were canceled for Albert, Albert, Albert. There was nothing to do but worry. Body could only sleep so many hours, and it was impossible 
to go about any kind of business without fighting off fifty shouting maniacs. And on the third day, she tried baking pies. She burst into tears when she, she spilled a cup of sugar. I put my arms around her and I kissed her neck, but she pushed me away like she'd never wanted to be touched again. She retreated to her couch and stayed there playing old movies. Albert was wicked pale on TV, taller and skinnier now. He was practically wasted away, but it wasn't food that brought him back. He, he begged for an audience with the president as he was sworn by passers-by. A few hugged him, rejoicing that their messiah had returned. Others pelted him with soda bottles and hunks of asphalt. Amateur video showed him bleeding from his head, but never using his awesome powers to knock down the people that were assaulting him. He was small for a 13-year-old, stunted by malnutrition. He was obviously sick, too, with spots of fever burning through that fish-pale skin. How sick, nobody knew. The president granted Albert's request. I don't suppose it matters that the boy's attitude was submissive or that he looked so fragile and lost. You can't say no to someone who stopped the sun dead overhead. Albert had an idea how he could make amends. Now, not every desert can bloom. Albert explained it like this. Energy flows in patterns rather than existing as a blanket. Snow and sand, grassland and jungle, all of these things balance each other. But he thought he could improve on nature's work, turn every inch of the planet into a garden. The politicians agreed. No doubt they hoped to take credit for it. How <laughs> he tried. Oh, how he tried. Leaping valleys, fighting swamps, always running, running and running. He didn't have anything else, you see, and his spectacular plan did seem to be slowly coming true. Maintaining this new, delicate balance would have become his life's work. Unfortunately, he'd picked up the HIV virus somewhere, and he'd had scurvy and other vitamin deficiencies. Worse, people kicked at him or threw things as he passed. It was like some awful game of global whipping boy. He was a reminder of the war, an easy scapegoat. Plus, there were plenty of folks who'd always said he was evil for not fitting into their small religions. Albert ran and bled and sweated and ran more until... Till the pneumonia hit. He was as ugly as a rabid stray when he came home for the last time. I've seen the replays now of Margie and me peeking out as he approached. I wish we hadn't looked so scared. At first, I didn't even think it was him because he'd stopped. I mean, he was walking, stumbling, really. But other than that, he was motionless. The world wasn't turning under his feet anymore. He was that far gone. Mother, he whispered, and Margie screamed a long, high shriek like a horse would make if it broke all four legs. She ran back inside, and after that, whatever bit of hope was left in him just seemed to fade. I did my best to say the right things, holding Albert as he died. It was important to him to share everything he'd seen and felt. His words weren't so much a confession as a confiding. All he'd ever wanted was to be one of us.
If we're lucky, the world will never see anything like him again. We didn't deserve him. We never knew what to do with Albert. And some debts are so great, you can only reject what's been given to you. There you go. See, what can I say? Larry, wow. Jeff and Larry, what a team. Brilliant. Excellent. Don't forget, copyright certainly is. Jeff Carlson's legacy. I'll put a link on Jeff's site. Pop over there. We've got some more work by Jeff as well, so do look out for that. And Larry, I'm going to get Larry on the show. It's been a while since I've had a chat with Larry. We've got to get Larry on, see how he's doing. Do you know what I mean? He went through a bit of a hell and back not long ago, but fingers crossed he's all right. And he was on my narrator's workshop. He was one of the guest speakers on there. And he just, again, delivered a stellar performance there, telling you how to be a narrator. So, amazing guy. So that is... Starship Sofa's show 175. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly have. Until next week, just like to say, good day from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a ventilation procedure machine. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.